Thank you very much, Travis. You think about that song, Emmanuel, God with us. We've been discussing Mark chapter 13. We know that Christ was with the 12. He was teaching them, leading them. And in Mark chapter 13, he is talking about no end times, what's coming in the future, and ultimately his return. And as we wrap up our discussion of Mark 13 this morning and go into chapter 14 next week, if I seem to stick a little closer to my notes this week, that's by design. There's some things I want to make sure I say, and there's some things I don't want to say, and I want to limit what I say. So if you notice, I stick more closely to notes. Again, don't worry about me. Uh, But want to try to communicate faithfully to the text. And as we think about the future, hypothetical question. Suppose you knew for a fact that you have only two months to live. You know that you are going to leave this earth on February 1st, 2015. That's a given. You know that. Would you change your lifestyle or make, certain thing, make sure certain things were done during the two months that you had? Ponder that for a minute. You know you're going to die in two months. Would you change your lifestyle, talk to some people, maybe take care of some things, maybe resolve some relationships and so on during those two months, or would you just continue the way you have been living if you would say, I would change some things and I would make sure some things happening would happen, are you then living with alertness, with watchfulness? Recently, I watched someone leave this earth. They knew death was coming. They didn't know when, but they knew it was coming. And they just did what they normally did. Continued their normal routine. And I thought they're living with alertness. They didn't have a lot to do. They're living as though today could be their last. And in Mark chapter 13, as Jesus speaks, he's giving some encouragement as to how to live. The 12 have asked, you know, about the temple. What's going to happen? Jesus said, you know, not one stone will be left on another. And he responds to them. And as we wrap up our discussion in Mark 13, please let the text speak. And stop with the text. Don't try to go beyond that. The entire chapter seems to be closely related to the events that he discusses. The entire chapter is dealing with a time period, and I think the events seem to all be interrelated. I don't think you can separate verses 15, or 5 to 13 from 14 to 23. You can't separate 24 to 37 from the other verses. And it would seem also like the early church experienced a foreshadowing of Mark 13. Persecutions, earthquakes, destruction of the temple, false Christ, but not its total fulfillment. 
especially verses 24 through 27 that talk about Christ's actual return. Now keep in mind in verses 2 through 4, Jesus had mentioned that not one stone will be left on another in relation to the temple. And then the four of the apostles ask, when will these things happen? And in 5 through 13, Jesus gives a response dealing with, seems like an extended period of time, where there are world events, there's persecution, there's family breakdown. And those things happen some in the early church, but I think also will be happening as Mark 13 comes to its total fulfillment. They also ask, what will be the sign that these things are about to happen in relation to the temple? And Jesus then says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation taking place, you know, take note. Let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judea Judea flee to the mountains and so on. And the abomination of desolation is referred to in Daniel chapter 9, apparently taking place in the middle of the tribulation period. We would be of the conviction that that is yet future, where the temple in Jerusalem is going to be desecrated and so on. And at that time, when that item is mentioned, the abomination of desolation, we find that Jesus says in verses 15 through 19, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter into the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to take his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in the winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. So apparently, abomination of desolation taking place. And when that is seen, Jesus says, flee. In verse 20, he says, if the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. So days are cut short. And it seems to be the days in relation to when the abomination is taking place. That's what he's been discussing in the context. He's been talking about fleeing. And you say, what does it mean to have the days cut short? Well, the amount of days could be cut short in the sense that if you have 180 school days and they say we're going to cut it to 100, the amount of time is cut short. Or it could mean the 24-hour day is cut short. You say, which is it? I'm not going to be dogmatic. Because I don't think you can demonstrate it specifically from the text. But there is a shortening of days, whether it be a shorter 24-hour day or just a shorter time where these events are going to take place. That will happen. Then he picks up in verses 21 through 23 that talks about false Christ. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is a Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders and miracles 
to deceive the very elect if that were possible. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. The warning here at that time seems again to talk about when people are fleeing, when the abomination is taking place, when there's persecution taking place, when there's wars and rumors of wars and so on. But it seems to be referring primarily to the abomination of desolation that time period where he says, beware of false Christ, false prophets. And as a result of that, be in your guard. Pay attention. Keep watch. This past week I went to the bank and I gave my deposit to the teller. There was a $100 bill there and she took that $100 bill and held it up, and I thought, she's being alert. She's being watchful. Is this a genuine $100 bill? And Jesus is saying as he speaks to the 12, false Christ, false prophets, in the midst of that, be in your guard. Be alert. The mark of faithfulness is watchfulness, not foretelling the future, but obedience in the presence. When Christ returns, he will fulfill the many Old Testament prophecies about the end. Also, despite imminent signs, believers cannot calculate when, where, or how the end will come. When it comes, no one will miss it. Until it comes, no one should be misled. On his own authority, Jesus warns his disciples and the church not to be distracted or diverted from obedience to the suffering Son of Man by speculations, nor by signs, nor by wonders. I want to emphasize again that Jesus is placing a strong emphasis on faithfulness in watchfulness. Not in foretelling the future, but obedience in the present. In my humble opinion, some teachers and listeners get so caught up in the future that they do not live well in the present. How did the twelve hear these comments? The twelve apparently heard the comments that the Son of Man is speaking, he is going through persecution. There's going to be difficulty, but ultimately, the end will come. So live faithfully. Be alert. How do the Roman believers, to whom Mark was probably written here, Mark 13, they're going through persecution. Some of them are dying for their faith. They're experiencing a partial fulfillment of being persecuted. They would be encouraged, I think, to say, we want to be faithful. We want to watch. But in the end, Christ is going to return. We can rest in him. So be faithful. In verses 24 through 27, Jesus talks about 
the Son of Man, in verse 24, but in those days. And the days, again, seem to tie in with the abomination of desolation, people fleeing, false Christ, false prophets. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. <coughs> Abomination of desolation, people fleeing, false prophets, false Christ, persecution. In those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Apparently future because Christ has not returned at this point in time. The problems caused by the misuse of eschatology are future events not least in contemporary America, has resulted in the virtual eclipse of eschatology in the body or in the life of the church. The unfortunate set of circumstances, both its abuse and its subsequent neglect, has weakened the church rather than strengthened it. If we dispense with eschatology or future events, then the purpose and destiny of history falls in the Hands of humanity alone. No one, I think, Christian or not, takes solos in that prospect. Unless human history, in all its greatness and potential, as well as its propensity to evil and destructiveness, can be redeemed, human life is a futile, empty endeavor. The longer that things ought not to be as they are, and cannot be allowed to remain as they are, is essential a future longing. The grand final of the gospel preached by Jesus is that there is a sure hope for the future. It is grounded not in history or logic or intuition, but in the words of Jesus in those days. Humanity will no longer usurp history but will relinquish it to, the, to its Lord and Maker, who will return in glory and justice con to condemn evil and suffering and gather his own to himself. We live in perilous times. Down through the pages of history, there have been all kinds of things. There's been persecution, nation against nation, famine, Families break up. Jesus says, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. Heavenly bodies will be shaken. And then the Son of Man will come.
if you read your newspaper at all, if you follow the news at all, most news is not good news. But at that time, in conjunction with the sun being darkened, the moon not giving us light, stars fall from the, falling from the sky, heavenly bodies being shaken, the Son of Man will come in clouds with great power and glory. The Son of Man coming in clouds is taken from the vision of Daniel 7, 13 and 14. What a remarkable irony that is, coming from a man who earlier in Mark has predicted his death, his humiliation, and who now is preparing for shameful treatment at the hands of the Jews and the Romans alike. He who will be crucified as a common criminal will come with great power and glory. In the Old Testament, clouds often symbolize the presence and glory of God. When Jesus returns in clouds, it can only mean that God is no longer present in the temple, but in Jesus, the Son of God. The preeminence of the Son is also manifested in verse 27. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. The Old Testament office speaks of gathering exiles and captives to Jerusalem on the day of the Lord. But here they're gathered to Jesus from the ends of the earth, the ends of the heaven. It's equally important to notice what this glorious vision of the future does not affirm. In Mark's gospel, there is no mention of the millennium, the new Jerusalem, a rebuilt temple, no restoration of Israel or the state of Israel, no battle of Armageddon, no hints how and when Christ will return. All these the text is silent on. All these incidentals that are not mentioned yield the preeminent truth of the power and the glory of Jesus' future coming and the promise that the elect will be gathered to him. This preview of the future ought not to lure us to calculate when Christ will return, nor to fear what will happen, but to know that he will come to claim his own. His coming is his promise and the gathering of believers to him is our hope. The battle of Armageddon, the temple, the state of Israel, restoration of Israel and so on may be mentioned elsewhere, but not in this text. I think the focus is on Jesus. He's going to gather his own to himself. So in verse 28 through 31, he says, Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at hand. I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words 
will never pass away. He says to the 12, learn. To the Roman church, learn. That means to genuinely understand and to live in light of it. I learned this lesson from the fig tree. The almond tree blossoms early in Palestine, often before winter is past. Oaks, olives, terabytes, and evergreens do not drop their leaves nor needles in the winter. Hence, they do not announce a change in seasons. But the fig tree is different. It loses its leaves in winter. And only late in spring, when winter is past and warm weather is at hand, does its branch grow tender with buds. Jesus saw the fig tree as being a suitable metaphor for the nearness of the end. You'll notice, he says clearly, when you see the fig tree get tender, you know that summer is near. Even so... When you see these things happen, what things is he talking about? The abomination of desolation, fleeing, persecution, father betraying children and children betraying father and so on. The things mentioned in chapter 13. When you see these things happen, you know the end is near, right at the door. What end? When Christ returns. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. I realize there's a lot of debate over this generation. What generation is he talking about? I'm not going to be super dogmatic. I'll tell you who I think the generation is referring to. It would seem to refer to the generation that is living when the abomination is taking place. Abomination of desolation is taking place. When there's false Christ coming on the scene, when there's false prophets, when there's tremendous persecution, when parents give their children to death and children give their parents to death and so on, when there's fleeing from Jerusalem, When that generation is present, it will not pass to all these things take place in chapter 13. The sun being dark, the moon not giving us light, Christ returning. And again, I may be wrong on that. I'm not going to be super dogmatic. I think that fits the context in a better way. And in verse 32, the text picks up that no one knows the day or hour. No one knows about the day or hour, nor even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door, to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, when they're in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows are at dawn. If he comes suddenly, 
Do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. The Elevate Discourse, as chapter 13 many times is called, concludes on a note of mystery. When you read chapter 13 as a whole, you may be somewhat disappointed because the discourse began with a request for a sign that is special insight into the future. But we learn in conclusion that the knowledge of the end exceeds no ability. Not only human, angelic knowability, but even the knowability of the Son of God. Its consummation is hidden solely in the mystery of God. All the signs that have been given add up to one conclusion. The end cannot be prepared for. That is because the end is ultimately not a then, but a mysterious Mysteriously present now, the sole preparation for the end is watchfulness and faithfulness in the present. So if I knew I had two months to live, and I say to Ruth Ann, I got to make sure I get this done and this done and this done. I got to talk to this person. Then I'm not living in watchfulness. I'm not being alert. But if I said to Ruth Ann, I'm going to die February 1st. We know it. It's going to happen. And she says, what are you going to do? I'm going to do what I normally do. I'm going to change my lifestyle because I've been living with alertness. I've been watching. And I don't need to change. I think that's where Jesus is coming from. Living with an alertness a faithfulness in watching that when the end comes, you've been ready. Even though you don't know the particulars, you can't put a date on it. You've been living in faithfulness. Verse 32 has been a stumbling block for some people. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Jesus doesn't know when he's coming back. Conservatives have either questioned or rejected the authenticity of this verse because it describes ignorance to Jesus. And liberals have done the same because it attests to Jesus' consciousness of his divine sonship. The fact remains, however, that the early church is scarcely likely to have attributed a saying to Jesus that ascribes ignorance to him. The saying lays the highest possible claim to have come from Jesus and to represent his mind. This verse contains an amazing paradox. Here's the bold assertion of divine sonship, but it is yoked to limitation of ignorance. 
In this, the only passage in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus explicitly calls himself the Son, he admits what he does not know and cannot do. This irony, to be sure, very much in accord with Mark's portrayal of Jesus as the Son of God, for Jesus does not claim the prerogative of divine sonship apart from complete obedience to the Father's will, but forsakes and calculates in favor of humble confidence in the Father's will. Equally ironic is the fact that the Son, unlike the disciples, relinquishes all claims of or all claims concerning the future into the Father's plan. The disciples wanted an it, a sign. Jesus wants a thou, the Father. Jesus is fully human and fully God. And at this time, as he did throughout the Gospel of Mark, lived in dependency upon the Father. If he knew the Father, that's all he needed. Because he could take the next moment, because he knew the Father. Mark, I think, is clearly communicating what Jesus said here. That Jesus humbly depended upon the Father. And Jesus is saying to the twelve, humbly depend upon God. Not having everything figured out. I think he sets an example to follow. The effect of verse 32 thus directs attention exclusively to the Father, for only the Father knows that the end is ultimately, or uh, only the Father knows about that day or hour. In the midst of calamity, destruction, tribulation, and persecution, when the sun and moon and stars are shaken, the believer can rest assured that God is still Father, and that the Father remains steadfast in His just will, compassion, and purpose. Jesus lived in dependency upon the Father. He didn't demand to know the day or the hour. And I think he's communicating to the twelve. Live in that dependency on the Father. To demand specifics about the future beyond what Scripture record is demanding to know what Jesus says here he did not know. Live in dependency on the Father. When we almost demand to know what is coming in the future, we are demanding what Christ does not demand. Let's, up, let's give up knowing too much about the future and act on the exhortations as the disciples were expected to act, along with the early church. Focus on what is clearly stated not that which a son does not even know. Learn to live with a degree of mystery. So what does Jesus say? It's like a man in verse 34. Going away, he leaves his house and puts his servants in charge with the assigned task. The idea is we don't know when the master's coming. 
So always be alert. Don't try to figure out when he's coming. Just live day by day expecting him to return. That's why he so clearly says in verse 35, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. You walk into class tomorrow if you're in school. And the teacher says, I have to be gone for the next half hour. It's 10 o'clock now. I will be back at 1030. Unless I miss my guess, I think there's going to be some activity in that room that would not be present if the teacher were there. At 10.29, everything will be back to normal and everyone will be sitting and acting like they'd been that way for the other 29 minutes. But if the teacher says, I got to step out for a few moments, I'm not sure when I'll be back. It's been a minute now. I wonder when he's coming. It's been three minutes now. I wonder when he's coming. We just better behave. Don't know when Christ is returning. He says to the twelve, therefore keep watch. Whether it's evening, midnight, when the rooster crows, or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. My father and mother and two younger siblings went to California when I was a teenager. My oldest brother was already working away from home. My next brother was also working away from home, and I was basically given the responsibility of taking care of the farm. My next older brother would help out a little when he got home from work, but it was my job to take care of the farm. During those three weeks, Dad never called. That was before the days of cell phone. We did have landlines, but Dad didn't call. He didn't call to say, Dan, how's it going? You're taking care of this, you're taking care of that, you're taking care of the next thing. When he left, he said, well, we're coming back. Planning to go to California, planning to return, we'll be back. I'm not sure exactly when, but I'll be back. Take care of the place. So every night I would go to bed and I could sleep because I'd been faithful that day. Took care of everything that needed to be done. So the next night rolled around and I'd go to bed. I could sleep because I'd been watchful and I'd been alert, took, taking care of everything that had done. So I didn't care if dad came back in a week or two weeks or a month or two months. Because I was ready. I was faithful. Jesus says over and over in this passage, watch. Be alert. Be on your guard. 
just live in a deep, deep sensitivity to faithfulness. Keep watch. What is the point of the passage? With the knowledge Jesus has of the future, he graciously warns the disciples to be on their guard, alert as to what they have alert as they have been with an expectation of the future, but not knowing when. He also humble or models a humble obedience on the Father. See, the chapter closes with a degree of mystery. They really can't pin something down. Why? Because Jesus lived in dependency moment by moment on his Father. And he wanted them to do the same. So some concluding thoughts. Even if we cannot be certain about the details of when, let us be confident that the events will take place. Therefore, live with a deep confidence the Lord has written future history. It's there. It's coming. When? He doesn't say specifically, but we can live with confidence. Seek to know him first, not seeking to know the future. We can know so much about the future as we study Scripture and try to figure it out. And the greater question is, do we know the Father? Do we know Christ? Live with watchfulness, alertness, and being on your guard. There's no need to worry about world events, wars and earthquakes and persecutions, family betraying family. It was predicted. Live with confidence. Oh, there's earthquakes. What are we going to do? This nation's against this nation. What are we going to do? We're going to live a humble confidence in Christ because Christ said this will happen. So if you heard in the news tomorrow that Iran is going to send something into Israel, oh, what's... don't worry, don't fret. Jesus said there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. Nations will rise against nations. Well, we must really be near the end. It might be. But live with watchfulness because you don't know when. But live with a confidence. Be willing to live with a degree of mystery concerning the future. You just can't figure it all out. If you had two months to live, would you change the way you live? Or are you presently living in alertness with watchfulness? Do you know Christ? Do you have a relationship with him? If not, why not come to faith in him today? If you have a relationship with the Creator God through Christ, then live with a watchfulness and expectation. Now, close with an account of what happened in 
college. Had a professor who loved to spring surprises. He said, I want you to know that you can have a quiz at any time on any given day. The only warning you get is now. You can have a quiz at any time, any day. I had to make a choice. Am I going to be prepared every day? He said, it's coming. Now, what if the prof had went the entire semester and waited till the next to the last class and gave a pop quiz? Oh, prof, why'd you wait till the last day? I prepared all these times and you didn't give a quiz. Well, I told you it could be at any time. My encouragement is to live as though the end could come at any time. But being watchful, being alert, being aware. Lord, today, tomorrow, Tuesday, we don't know. But live with an alertness. And I think that comes out in chapter 14. Father, we thank you for your word. The fact that we can discuss it, study it. And even though we come to the end of chapter 13 with a degree of mystery, not maybe being able to figure out as much detail as we might like and just some things not being mentioned that might be mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, I think drives home the point that we're to live in humble dependency upon you and upon Christ with a deep alertness, a deep watchfulness. May we live in that way, Father, so that whether we are alive and are living in the end times or whether there are many, or the end time is many years in the future, may we be found faithful. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.